0: I'm Charles Pryor, and you're listening to New Books in British Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. What have the Romans ever done for us? That's the question put to his pals by Reg in a much-quoted scene from Monty Python's Life of Brian. The debate there is notionally about imperial oppression of Judea, but the assembled radicals ultimately agree that, in fact, the Romans were the bringers of sanitation, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, a freshwater system, and public health. In other words, they got things done. In his new book, Michael Braddock explores the Romans and the peoples who succeeded them on Britain from the vantage point of the politics of getting things done. It is a concise but wide-ranging book which localizes global history by focusing on agency, the power to do things. In a historical field dominated by attention to power, rulers and parliaments, this book insists on a shift in perspective and makes a convincing case for history as a resource for meeting the future rather than as a source of comfort and national groupthink. Mike Braddock is professor of history at the University of Sheffield. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks very much Charles. So um, you've been on before we talked about your book about John Lilburn before that, uh, God's Fury, England's Fire, a large narrative and incisive history of the Civil War period. So you're a well-known and widely read historian of the Civil War of the 17th century. Um, So what led you to write this book and this kind of book?
1: Well, it was a a kind of a response to Brexit. Um, It's not a book arguing about the outcome of the referendum or or whether Brexit was the right thing or not. But I, I felt very strongly that the Brexit debate was too much about identity and too little about practical politics. Were we better off in or out of the EU? And there are practical arguments on both sides. But I thought um, much of the debate was was really about identity. And and as a historian, I found the way that history was used to prop up these positions on identity politics was was really unhelpful and that we could have had a more historically informed argument about how to achieve collective goals and at what level we need to act in order to achieve different kinds of things and act in different kinds of collectivities and so on. And I just thought that the history of uh, collective action on the island of Britain offered more resources for thinking about the EU debate than um, the history of British identity and the history of the UK. So it's not a Brexit intervention in the sense of saying... I told you so, or we got it all wrong, or, you know, it was the right decision for Britain. Uh, But it is a Brexit book in the sense that I think we could have more helpful conversations about collective challenges if we didn't reduce them to matters of identity and if we didn't see the past as simply a source of collective identity.
0: So it's a, it's a Brexit book and I guess a lockdown book as well, presumably written, <laughs> written during lockdown?
1: Yes, yeah, I, I did. Um, uh, that's right, I've got another project. <laughs> I don't know if this is quite what you're asking, but there's another project which I couldn't do under lockdown conditions. Yeah. And I, I decided to use my time for this instead. Yeah.
0: Time well used. So... The, the book turns on a central tension between what you describe as collective and differential power. Um, and can you tell us uh, a little bit more about these concepts and how they function in British history?
1: Yeah, so in the, in the book, I introduce them with a kind of thought uh, experiment that uh, there's a village that needs to drain a marsh, and that's not going to happen through market forces or individual effort. It will only act It'll only happen through collective organized action. And so um, people act together to drain the marsh. By acting together, they exercise a collective power. But someone has to organize that effort uh, and make people work on a Sunday and then decide who gets which bit of the drained land and so on. And so there are people in coordinating positions who have a differential power, that is power over others. And I think most of politics is like that. It's solving problems that won't be solved by individuals or by the market. It's doing it through exercise of collective power, that by acting together we can do things that the market or individuals can't do. Uh, But also when we do that, we create differential power for the people organising and coordinating the effort. And I then apply that sort of idea you know that the EU has a differential power to do things that individual states can't do but then we worry about the differential power of uh, EU bureaucrats or monarchs have the power to organize national defense but we worry about their power over our lives or property um, and, and so the relationship between collective power and differential power is, is regulated through institutions. And so the book is centrally about the variety of ways in which collect, collective institutions have been formed to achieve things together while restricting the differential power of the people who run them. And, and you know, I then suggest, and I, I hope there's some plausibility in this, that you can look at a lot of areas of, of collective life through that lens. And it reveals a lot of areas of political activity that a standard story of the development of Britain and uh, British identity in the UK doesn't reveal. So I think it, it brings into view more varieties of political action uh, and gives us more resources to think about how to act now and in the future.
0: So we'll just pick pick up on, 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 on the concept of collective institutions. Um, I mean, the prominent ones uh, are those that sort of appear on prime minister's question time um, and other forms of ent- light entertainment. Uh, but what are what are some what are the examples that you focus on? There's a lot of them in this book, but I mean, pick out uh, some of the some examples. And you know, how are they used? Um, and uh, you know, what how do they, how are they used as, as mechanisms? I suppose to achieve uh, these these goals.
1: So one one case I, I um, speak about at length is the Metropolitan Board of Works in London in the 19th century, where there was a major escalating environmental problem caused by the congregation of people and the difficulty of managing human waste and clean water. And London had grown very quickly so that there was this large um, population with a shared problem, but there was no institution that catered for the problem at that scale Um, the drainage and sewerage were handled by many small bodies in london and to coordinate a response to the whole of london required some new form of institution and so i talk about the pressures um, that led to um, the creation of the metropolitan board of works which had responsibility for the whole of london and eventually uh, was able to construct the the sewer system which still mainly serves london Um, but also the tensions there were over creating a body with that kind of power so I use that as an example of how um, a collective problem emerges at a scale where there isn't a collective institution Um, that institution is eventually created and and does meet the challenge but that you know at the same time there's concern about the differential power uh, of the of the people running it, because the, the Metropolitan border Works had powers of compulsory purchase and all, all that, in order to construct the summit the the sewers. Um, so, I, I talk about metropolitan border works in, in detail, but across time, these things are, you know, you can talk about Anglo Saxon kingdoms this way, or you can talk about Kirk sessions in Scotland in the post Reformation period in this way, um, quarter sessions in England. Um, uh, it, it's a way of understanding a lot of what's going on. And I also talk about the arrival of, the, of Regis Romans, that um, people are attracted people on Britain are attracted to cooperation with the Romans because of access to the benefits of the collective institutions, but they're also paying a price in submission to the differential power of the Romans, and, and that is kind of reges. Issue, isn't it? That the the you submit to Roman tyranny and you get in return uh, better roads, better sewerage uh, and all that. So uh, you, you, I do elaborate the the argument in lots of different directions, but really to illustrate that it's a, a flexible way of thinking about lots of different kinds of politics and in lots of different kinds of periods. Um, and just just one further point is that it start I start with Stonehenge because from then on we have quite good evidence for collective organisation on the island. So I've kind of maximised the period of study, Mm. all the varieties of collective action over the last 6,000 years and tried to suggest that this collective differential and the institutionalisation of the relationship helps to think about lots of ways people have got things done. Mm.
0: So, I mean, when... People think of, of British British history or Britain, and I'm, I'm here now speaking to our North American and, and global audiences, um, British history comes across through some fairly prominent institutions and it's represented in um, an endless stream of TV documentaries about the Tudors. <laughs> um, it's really a narrative of rulers, kings, queens, legislatures, sovereignty, sovereignty, um, and uh, as you've mentioned, uh, the national identity, which really came to the fore in, in Brexit and, and elsewhere uh, in that year. Uh, but in this book, you show how power functioned and was deployed on, on varying scales. And I can see a sort of a return to some of your earlier work on the state here. Um, so what does this more localized perspective uh, reveal to us? What do these varying scales of political action reveal?
1: Well, I think it, uh, it, it, people often say that um, the past is a foreign country and and, that, you know, and, and that's the value of, of um, history. But I think as a historian, you can see the present as a foreign country. You can see uh, things that are taken for granted in the present, which aren't necessarily natural or, or eternal or enduring. And so, in order to shock, I say on the back of the book that the United Kingdom hasn't yet lasted as long as the Kingdom of Wessex, mm. and it and it may not do so. And so, mm. to think that the the natural centre of political life on the island of the institutions at Westminster, and the collective identity associated with them is, is to take for granted something which shouldn't be taken for granted. Um, I I say that because I believe in in the Union and I want us to take the Union seriously and do what's necessary to preserve it. But, um, you know, an opponent of the Union could equally say, well, there we are, you know, why stick with the Union? But the the idea is that by looking at the variety of scales uh, of action on the island, um, it renders the present... um, Uh, It historicizes the present it makes the present look like it might change and it could change and that we should try to make it change in the right ways and not the wrong ways so it's in that way I think that an awareness of the the oddity of the present is is potentially useful because it it helps us identify what we might want to do in order to preserve what's good about how we do things and, and change what's not good about how we do things and not see them as sort of natural or inevitable products of of the way life is on the island mm-hmm.
0: actually I'm, I'm just uh listening to that um and reading the book and it's i sort of hit it in my intro a bit um you custom maryland uh, i'm going off piste a little bit but so just you know, let's run with it but you say on britain not in it yeah why
1: yeah, so uh, I, I try to, if, if you take my view that, that Britain is not a natural political community, why write a history of Britain? Well, it's a geographical area, and usually you say of an island, it's on the island. So it, it's the history of how people have organised on the island. Mm-hmm. If you say in Britain, you're sort of assuming that Britain is a unified community, which in, in the ninth century makes no sense. In in mm. the Roman period makes no sense. The Romans didn't conquer the whole island, so mm. um, I, I, I try. It's a bit of artful, I know, but uh, it's. it's kind of, <laughs> um, if you think about how, if you, I'm trying to get us to think about the island as a geographical space on which people have organised themselves quite differently at different times, mm-hmm. and and um, another thing I say in the book is that not many islands are you. Un- unified states actually uh, of the top 10 if greenland's mm-hmm. the biggest of the top 10 only madagascar is a unitary state because of course britain isn't it's uh, mm. it's the island of great britain plus a bit of the, the neighboring island uh, and most islands are like that they're part they, they they the um they're part of a political entity that overlaps the island but doesn't isn't restricted solely to the island and again that's true of most of british history the romans connected the south of the island with continental europe the vikings connected the shetland that uh, connected orkney with with the uh, um, nordic world into the 15th century um so the island if you think about um overlays of political institutions they very rarely map onto the island so mm-hmm. uh, what I want to think about is people living on the island of Britain Mm -hmm. interacting with institutions with very different geographies. Mm -hmm.
0: And of course, that, that scaled up globally, if you think imperially in, in, in the West and East, I mean, this, this small island projecting tremendous political control, but Apache political control uh, all over the place really uh,
1: absolutely I mean the the United Kingdom is formed at a moment when the English crowns exercising authority on in North America uh, West Africa uh, mm. and South Asia mm. and there's not really a moment where I the island is united but not governing some other part of the globe so it, it you know, thinking of Britain as a natural political unit is is a really odd thing to do. Hmm.
0: So your concluding argument, um, and I think the it's 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 probably a mischaracterization to call it a concluding argument. In many ways, it's, it's the red thread of the book um, is a case for political agency over the centrality of institutions and identity. And that, uh, as you've been saying, uh, entails a, a pivot away from a, a whole set of comforting national coordinates. Cue um, yeah, uh, John Major um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, with the, what was it, the sun going across
1: the cricket pitch or something. <laughs> That's right. The old, yeah. old maids cycling home to tea mm. past mm-hmm. the sun-drenched cricket grounds, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's 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 Downton Abbey. People love that stuff. <laughs> um, so I mean, th- but those things are are sort of comforting, but also thinking about it, kind of polarizing too: uh, identity, culture, citizenship, nostalgia for a neatly uh, constructed past. So why is that? Why is that pivot necessary right now? I guess here we we come back to to uh, Brexit um, and, and I guess, the the position
1: of Britain globally? Yeah, I think um, it's it's that, it's that many of our, the challenges we face globally, we're speaking uh, as COP26 is or is not working, Um, many of our challenges are much larger than the island. COVID is an issue much larger than the island we need to act collectively and politically beyond the island. And, and Brexit has ruled out doing that through the EU, but it hasn't a- answered how we are going to do it. And I, I, I don't think a retreat to that kind of nativism is a viable political strategy. Um, even if our vaccination programme has been very successful, we're not safe until everyone in the globe is vaccinated and public health problems globally have been addressed. You know, so. I think uh, it's partly about the scale of political challenges and how we are going to address them if it's not through the EU. Um, But it's also this way of thinking about institutions is it it raises questions about who gets to uh, make them work and how effectively they serve the collectivity and whether the power of the people dominating those institutions uh, is is uh, distorting their their collective value. So, in that sense, it's also a way of talking about political inclusion and and who is in the collective and how is their voice heard and are they being able are they able to shape the use of collective institutions. And I think that speaks to another set of issues in Britain about social inclusion political inclusion but also the value of a vote in a Westminster election and and how uh, effectively any of us as citizens really do shape the use of our collective institutions so I think put, putting these questions this way uh, raises lots of contemporary political issues and and um, gives access to past experience that might might help us think about them. and And I think it's a much more useful way of using the past than that kind of cementing a Downton Abbey version of Britishness, which is really upper middle class Englishness, white Englishness, heterosexual Englishness. Um, and so I, I, the, it, it goes back to my starting point, which is history is a source of of identity, of course. But it's also a source of experience. And I think it's more useful to us as a source of past experience. How did clever people in the past confront their collective challenges and regulate these relationships between collective and differential power? That I think might give us resources to think about the present and the future.
0: It is a useful history of Britain, this book, uh, The Politics of Getting Things Done published by Oxford University Press, written by Michael Braddock, who's professor of history at Sheffield. Uh, Thanks, Mike, for taking some time to talk to me about this excellent book. Everybody go out and buy one.
1: (laughs) Or two. Thank you very much,
0: Charles. You're welcome. It was a great pleasure. Thank you.